All right, so we are taking a couple weeks break from the confession so that Caleb has time to study more fully what comes next, and he's given me the opportunity to <clears throat> talk about something that's been on my mind and my heart for a long time. I just never really knew how to put it into words, and the study of it was daunting to me. Uh, so it's it's been a while coming, uh, and I still don't think I have it nailed down, but I want to go ahead and uh, look biblically at the idea of a Christian's responsibility to his neighbor. Now, I know it's a very broad topic, uh, and I want to cover a lot of it, so we'll see how far we get, and brother, we might need more than two weeks for this, so we'll see. The reason that I want to study this uh, is born out of some personal confusion on um, what exactly my responsibility is to people that I come in contact with, um, what do I owe them, how much do I owe them, for how long do I owe them, is it ever okay to tell someone, no, I'm not going to give you this or... Um, whether it be time or money or emotional support. Culturally, this has become a highlight um, with the social justice movement. What is our responsibility to poor people? What is our responsibility to oppressed people, to minorities? There's a lot of confusion floating around. And so I'd like to take a deep dive just into the broad subject of what, what does it mean to be to love our neighbor and what's our responsibility there. To, to start off with, and we'll circle back around to this eventually, uh, our first and primary responsibility is to glorify God, and our secondary responsibility is to love our neighbor. I want to frame it that way and keep that in the forefront of our discussion, that firstly, our responsibility to glorify God is preeminent. That's what comes first. And the command to love our neighbor is not only secondary to that, but only achieved through that first and primary objective of glorifying God and loving Him. The Westminster Catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Question 1. Our confession teaches the same. Matthew 22, verse 36. Um, the Pharisees ask, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus connects that second commandment of loving your neighbor to the first commandment of loving God with all your heart. The Ten Commandments also, in a way, show the truth of this by the first table, we call it, dealing with our responsibility to God and the worship of God. And then the second table deals with our responsibility to our neighbor. So even there you see a hierarchy of the responsibility to God first, and then from that responsibility to God we have the responsibility to our neighbor. So our secondary responsibility flows from our first responsibility. Therefore we must start with our first responsibility to honor God in order to even have a correct understanding of our responsibility to others, much less be able to carry out that responsibility. So the first and most important consideration when it comes to our responsibility to our neighbor is to seek first the glory of God and cultivate a close relationship with him. Does that make sense? So you, 
<clears throat> in order to even begin to answer the question, what is my responsibility to my neighbor and how do I carry that out? You first have to say, what is my responsibility to God and how do I carry out that responsibility? So we're not going to flesh that out right now. Um, we're going to kind of, when we get to the nitty gritty of what do I do, we're going to look back to, well, what is my responsibility to God? Firstly, and that will inform us to know what our responsibility is to our neighbor. Okay. Alright, so after that by way of introduction, <clears throat> next I'd like to look at kind of the history of where the church has landed on this issue, uh, just briefly, because I think it helps to, to realize that there are other respected leaders of the church that have had very different views than what uh, we currently hold um, in the last several hundred years even. So starting with the patristic era, one of the major, major figures was Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to say it, and he urged Christians to turn away from the desire for material wealth and success. He argued that accumulation of wealth was not a worthy goal for Christians. So very early on, you see almost um, a disdain for riches and a teaching that if you want to be holy, you cannot be rich or you shouldn't be rich. That uh, seeking riches was only um, a, a pursuit of the unholy. That wasn't the only teaching, but that kind of dominated that era. Then you move to uh, the medieval era. <clears throat> And uh, historian Alan Cahan, I think it's actually his name, said that in this medieval era, theologians regularly condemned merchants. For example, um, I don't even know how to say this guy's name, Honorius of Aton, something like that. It was a, somebody that was influential back in the day, did a lot of writing on theology. Wrote that merchants had little chance of going to heaven, whereas farmers were more likely to be saved. He wrote that the man who buys something in order that he may gain by selling it again, unchanged as he bought it, that man is of the buyers and sellers who are cast forth from God's temple. So there was still this disdain for riches and wealth and pursuing um, the, the lifestyle of a merchant, you could say. But we also see Thomas Aquinas come in. And there's a little bit of a change in the attitude of wealth. Thomas Aquinas defined avarice not simply as a desire for wealth, but as an immoderate desire for wealth. He wrote that it was acceptable to have external riches to the extent that they were necessary for him to maintain his condition of life. He argued that the nobility had a right to more wealth than the pheasantry. What was acceptable for a person to seek, what was not acceptable was for someone to seek more wealth than was appropriate to his station in life. So you have in the patristics kind of just a general disdain for wealth. If you're rich, you're a sinner. And then the medieval era, you see kind of a shift to, well, different people have been given different stations of life by God. So if you are born a king, then you have a right to a certain amount of wealth and you know various levels of standing. Basically, you ought to be content in the station of life that God puts you. So there's a, a small shift, but still kind of a general disdain for riches or trying to accumulate more wealth than you started with or your station in life has for you. 
the biggest change <clears throat> comes several hundred years later when Calvin comes on the scene. And the, the big debate um, seemed to kind of center around usury or interest. So in the beginning, they, the, the patristics and the medieval, it was always wrong to charge interest. So in those societies that were governed by those leaders, interest was, was wrong. You could, it was illegal to charge interest. And Calvin comes, <clears throat> and, and he doesn't completely overhaul it, but he, he gives a different perspective on it. So the Christian teaching up to the time of the Reformation had typically condemned wealth, if not for wealth's sake, then the temptation towards greed and selfishness that wealth represented. Money-making, though recognized as necessary, was regarded by Aquinas as turpitude. And it was commonly believed that it was with great difficulty that uh, the shopkeeper pleased God or the merchant pleased God. Money-making was considered socially degrading and morally dangerous. Fullerton, in <clears throat> 1928, remarks that the changed attitudes towards money and money-making are the basic qualities that characterize the shift from the Middle Ages to the modern age. So Calvin comes in, he says, interest is not wrong in and of itself, but interest needs to be divided into uh, business and uh, charity. So if someone comes to you and they are in need and you charge them interest for the money that you loan them, that's sin. But if there's a business endeavor and you're charging interest as a way of uh, business and, and conducting business, that's not sinful. So they would say, you know, uh, if you get a loan to start a business, that's not sinful. A mortgage wouldn't be sinful. But if someone comes to you and says, hey, I can't pay my house note. Can you help me out? And you say, sure, but you're going to owe me this plus this. That would be sinful. So we see this shift of not all um, business endeavors of money making are sinful um, and, and kind of a, an easing up on the idea that any kind of Merchant lifestyle would be sinful. Would you say that you saw uh, the Reformation kind of getting back to the forefront when the church Yeah, that actually, yeah, that, glad you mentioned that because that had a lot to do with it. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's ironic the, the, Right, because you, you've got even the, the Roman church teaching that it's wrong to pursue wealth, but you've got the church rolling in dough. And so, yeah, about the time it was more Calvin, Luther came and, and really preached against the church's wealth. You know, the, his, one of his big sticks was, uh, what's it called? When you, indulgences, yeah. The, the church making money off of the Bible, basically. And so Luther had a, a big shtick against the church, and Calvin kind of expanded on that and was just saying, well, hey, if, you know, th this is hypocrisy. You're saying it's wrong to be rich, but you're just rich in the name of the church, basically. And so the next <clears throat> big turning point was the Puritans, who leaned heavily on the Reformers and kind of built on... Um, their work, and that's really where you see the, the pendulum shift from wealth is bad 
And then kind of the reformers were like, well, it's really about how you use it. And then the Puritans shifted almost to where they would say that wealth is good and you should pursue it. So this is all um, historian Joseph Confortis. He wrote a big book about Puritanism and how um, that changed the game economically in the world. And so this isn't necessarily from a Christian perspective. This is uh, an economics view of Puritanism and, and how that changed kind of the, the landscape. For Puritans, work was not simply arduous drudgery required to sustain life. The character of vocation, a calling, their view was that it was the character of a vocation, a calling through which one improved the world, redeemed time, glorified God, and followed pilgrimage toward salvation. Gerard Wilmore characterized the Puritan social ethic as focused on the acquisition and proper stewardship of wealth as outward symbols of God's favor and the consequent salvation of the individual. So instead of saying, if you're rich, you probably got it by evil means, the Puritans came along and said, if you're rich, you probably obeyed God and worked hard and earned your money. So those are both possibilities. It's more of a emphasis change. Puritans were urged to be producers rather than consumers and to invest their profits to create more jobs for industrious workers who would thus be enabled to contribute to a productive society and a vital, expansive church. Puritans were counseled to seek sufficient comfort and economic sufficiency, but to avoid the pursuit of luxuries or the accumulation of wealth, of material wealth for its own sake. So here the pendulum has shifted from wealth is bad to actually wealth is a good tool that can be used to advance the kingdom. And so in all of these different views, they all maintain that Christians ought to be concerned with the poor. They ought to um, aim for a society where there is some sort of equity, where we help our brothers when they're in need. There's just a, a difference in opinion on how that should work. So in the early ages, you kind of have this idea of we'll give it all to the church and let the church distribute that to the needy as we see fit. And then over time, you see this change of thought. When you get to the Puritans, it's a just a complete 180 where they say, make as much money as you can. And instead of just handing out money, let's create a society where everyone has the ability to improve themselves and sustain themselves and have a productive lifestyle. So that's kind of the very broad history of the church's stance on it. And we get to today where we still have this capitalism versus social justice um, tension where you have, you know, the more conservative Christians saying the Puritans were right. You ought to work for what you have, be good to the needy. But instead of just handing out money, you should try to help them um, get a job and get established. And you have... Uh, the social justice movement and more liberal Christians really wanting to go back to the more patristic and medieval thought of um, it's wrong to be rich. Any money you have, you need to immediately give it away and care for the poor. <clears throat> I think if I were to be gracious to both sides, I would say that both of them are attempting to carry out the biblical prescription of loving our neighbor. But I do believe that one is more biblically founded than the other. And of course, on both sides, you have people who twist the view to their own ends. 
you have some people who just don't want to work. And so they say, well, if you have money, you ought to just give it to people that don't because they don't have money and they want it, but they don't want to work for it. Then you also have greedy people who have money who take the view of the Puritan and say, well, I earned this money. And if you want money, you should just earn it too as an excuse not to give to the needy and help people. So both have their merits. One, I believe, is more biblical. Both can be twisted um, to your own devices. All right, so let's get into the biblical framework for how we ought to view this question. Firstly, we are commanded to care for those in need. I just want to start there and we'll build a foundation from that. James 127 tells us to care for orphans and widows, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Isaiah 1.17 calls us to call for the, to care for the oppressed. It says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Proverbs 21.13 Reminds us to care for the poor. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. And then we have more general commands. Galatians 6.10 So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Ephesians 4.28 Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And of course, we have Luke 10, 27, the story of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus answers the question of who is your neighbor, basically by saying, anyone that needs your help. And we have that <clears throat> great story of the unlikely Samaritan uh, caring for the Jew when even his own people would not. So, any questions just on the broad command that biblically we are responsible and required to help those in need and give to the person that has want. All right, <clears throat> that's the foundation we'll build off of. Christians do have a responsibility. So then the next question is, to whom specifically are we responsible? Because the first question, when you say, well, the Bible says you should help everyone, first question that pops into my mind is, okay, well, I have limited resources and limited reach, so... To whom am I more specifically responsible? Am I supposed to just find the first needy person that I can and give everything to him and then my responsibility is fulfilled until I have more money and then just do the same thing over and over? Or is there some kind of structure that I need to think through and how to best fulfill this commandment to love my neighbor? John Calvin wrote extensively on this. He said, Humanitarian aspirations, as they are termed, are exhilarating especially to noble natures, but we cannot all of us do everything, and there is some danger in dreaming of doing it, the danger of ending by doing nothing, on the ground that to do everything is plainly impossible. So, Calvin comes and he says, yeah, humanitarian efforts are great, but when you get this rah-rah, I'm going to change the world and fix everything, then the overwhelming dauntingness of that endeavor kind of washes over you and you realize that it's hopeless and so you do nothing. And so he says, <clears throat> we need to look at the Bible and see how does the Bible tell us to prioritize our giving and our help. So 
With limited resources, it's not possible for us to relieve the pain and suffering of anyone who and everyone who is poor and oppressed. So the question becomes, how do I prioritize who receives my help? Firstly, um, I get this from the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19.1. Your first priority is to anyone that you have wronged. If you have stolen, if you have cheated, if you have taken, your first priority is to restore that. And that goes all the way back to your responsibility in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. So if you have stolen, if you have taken, if you have cheated, your first priority is to restore that which you have taken. The next uh, biblical metric we have is in Galatians 6.10. We just read that. Galatians 6.10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone general responsibility to do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith so here we have the writer of Galatians giving preference to those who are in the church so you should give to everyone but you should give more or those in your church ought to be your higher priority so there is a a level of priority given there Matthew 15 4 through 6 gives us another priority Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees, says, For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained for me is given to God, he need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So Jesus is giving another example of priority where he says your family, those in your immediate family, you have a moral responsibility to take care of. And so the Pharisees were going around saying, well, I gave it to the church, so I'm sorry, mom and dad, but I don't have anything left for you. So they were gaining honor and influence for themselves by giving to what they thought was a more worthy cause. And Jesus comes along and says, no, your first priority is to those in your immediate family you must take care of them. So we see here a priority statement from Jesus. Take care of your mother and father, your family. <clears throat> we see this backed up in 1 Timothy 5, 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, so relatives broadly, especially those in your immediate household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Very strong words. So, if I were to rank the priority based on Scripture, I would say your first priority is to anyone you have wronged or cheated or stolen from. Then you have those in your tight-knit, your, your nuclear family that you have responsibility to. Then, outside of that, your broader family and then your church family. So, then you have the, the people of God that you have specifically covenanted with. Then, from that the broader, broader Christian community, and then after that, the rest of the world. So, we do have a responsibility to care for broadly everyone, but there are priorities given in Scripture for who we ought to uh, care for first, I guess you could say. Now, that's all well and good, but it doesn't really answer the question of who we should give to and when we should give it and how much we should give it. Because even though my first priority is to those in my family, if 
There's a question of Caleb has a good jacket, but it's kind of dirty. He could probably use a new one. And then I come across someone lying in a ditch that I have no idea who they are, no connection to them. But if I don't shell out some money to get them to a hospital, they're going to die. Do I say, well, Caleb is my first priority. I don't have enough money to do both. So sorry, dude, but got to take care of my son. Well, obviously not. So there is a, a sliding scale, if you will, a metric of, okay, well, I know my first priority is to my family and my son, but this person has a greater need. So does need outweigh family uh, and priority? And I will not answer that yet. But I want that thought to be in the back of your mind. We have a responsibility to everyone. The Bible does give us priorities of who we ought to help. So if they're the same amount of need, I help this person first because God has instituted family and church and he has placed me in this context with these people. So I have a responsibility to them first. Let me read you a couple of rather lengthy quotes um, to kind of back up from church history what I'm saying. John Wesley in his famous Sermon 50, which deals with this whole topic, says this, the directions which God has given us touching the use of our worldly substance may be comprised in following particulars. If you desire to be a faithful and wise steward out of that portion of your Lord's goods, which he has for the present lodged in your hands, but with the right of resuming whenever it pleases him, first provide things needful for yourself, food to eat, raiment to put on, whatever nature moderately required is required for preserving the body and health and strength. Secondly, provide for these your wife, your children, your servants, or any others who pertain to your household. If when this is done there be an overplus left, then do good to them that are of the household of faith. If there be an overplus still, as you have opportunity, do good to all men. In so doing, you give all you can, nay, in a sound sense, all you have. So he's saying, when you do this, when you care for yourself, then your family, then Christians, then everyone else, that is giving all you have. For all that is laid out in this manner is really given to God. You render unto God the things that are God's, not only by what you give to the poor, but also that which you expend in providing things needful for yourself and your household. And we thought that was very insightful. So whenever... You hear, well, you ought to give everything you have to the poor. Part of that is taking care of yourself and your family and your church. That is included in that you should give everything to God and help. <clears throat> I'll skip the next quote by John Calvin, which basically gives the same thing in the same categories. But I'll read you another one from Calvin. He said, there are duties which we owe to all men arising out of a common nature, but the tie of a more sacred relationship established by God himself binds us to believers. And the reason I want to highlight that is because this idea of priority in the Christian life is not just some vague, <clears throat> wishy-washy, um, misplaced ideal but it's grounded in the sovereignty of God. God gave me this family. 
Therefore, I have a God-given responsibility to care for these people. God has placed me in this church sovereignly. And so by placing me here, he is telling me these are the people that you have the first priority to take care of. And so when you look at Scripture and the wisdom of those that have come before us, I think that it's very clear that there are um, levels of priority that, we are, that are to be given um, as we think through who and how much and to what extent we ought to share what God has given us with others. Any questions on the, how we rated those priorities, the biblical ideal of it? Um, any questions that have anything to do with what we're saying at this point? Yeah. Um, I think you said something about uh, that they they have a more direct responsibility to take care of those in more extended families. Therefore, we take care of those in the church. Um, uh, just what is that? Can you flesh that out a little bit more? Yeah. Yeah. So, short answer is, Bible doesn't say. I'm basing that off of 1 Timothy 5.8 where it says if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially the members of his own household, then he's worse than an unbeliever. So I would say that <clears throat> you have to use godly wisdom in deciding where that relatives extends to. You know, does it extend to your third cousin removed twice on your father's side that you've never met in your life? But you're... Yeah, technically related to them, so should I help this person? Um, <clears throat> personally, I would say that without having studied the text, he's probably referring to you know your your relatives that you are in close contact with. So you know your aunts and uncles and cousins, those relatives that you see often, know well, and have a lot to do with that God has placed in your what I would call sphere of influence. Right. <clears throat> yeah. I think the Bible leaves it broad there for a reason, you know. Yeah, I mean, in that day, if they moved all the way across Palestine to somewhere else, you know, some region of Galatia, there would be no contact. Right. And also the, the familial context that this was written in was very different today where you had generations living together, you know, so you had... Your, your relatives would be a, a broad group of people, but you lived with them. You were in constant contact with them, and then you had your nuclear family inside of that. And so I think, I think it would have been much clearer to the, the readers what he was saying, and I think we have to take the general wisdom of that and apply it to our social context today. Anything else? All right. We'll start into this next section here then. I don't know how far we'll get into it. But the question that arises then, okay, so first question is, do I have a responsibility to help my neighbor? Yes. Biblically, yes. Okay, how do I decide who to help? Biblically, we've made the parameters of nuclear family, relatives, your church, specifically the church, universal, then others that come into your sphere of influence. Next, the question is, okay, so if I know that I am supposed to help and I know kind of 
who I'm supposed to help. The next question is how much am I obligated to help them? Should Am I biblically obligated to give away every penny that I have that is not spent on me and my family and my church? Any excess at that point that isn't necessary to sustain the basics of life? Am I morally obligated by Scripture to give that away for the glory of God and the betterment of society? That's the question. Any thoughts on just that question before we get into it? Something just came to me, I thought, might, instead of thinking of it in terms of priorities, it might be helpful to think of, it also might be helpful to think of our two primary responsibilities to the church and family as kind of uh, balances. And so, on, on the one hand, if you only took care of, you know, because you have the Galatian passage that says, especially those in the household of faith, well, if I only took care of those in the church, but I disobeyed the Timothy passage that says, take care of those in the household, you know, so, so that holds that accountable. But on the other hand, if I only took care of my immediate family and never took care of the church, well, then I'm, I'm neglecting my responsibility to the church as well. Right. So, like, it, it, to think of it as, like, you know, okay, there's the sphere of the family, and so I have family members, and I'm to take care of those, but even within my family, I'm especially to take care of those family members that are believers. Mm-hmm. Kind of like letting both of those primary responsibilities kind of shed light on one another and hold each other accountable, although it might not be so cut and dry, like, right. well, first I've got my family, regardless of whether or not they're believers, I'm going to take care of them, then I, you know, maybe kind of especially Oh yeah, for sure. And, and I, I'm intentionally muddying the waters here because the, at the very end is, um, when I want to kind of, as best I can give an answer of the nitty gritties. And so I kind of want the, the waters to be muddy cause I want us to be thinking through this. So let me throw another glob of dirt in there. <clears throat> when the Bible tells us to help our neighbor and those first passages we read that um, identified, you know, widows and poor and orphans. I think what scripture is doing there is highlighting levels of need. So those were the neediest of society. So when I say, yes, your first priority is to your family, then you have even levels inside of that as, okay, so who in my family is the neediest? And do I have people in my family that are believers that are neediest? Okay, so if what if someone is not a believer and there is a believer in need, but the unbeliever has more need, who do I help with my limited resources? And then, you know, it further gets more and more muddy. Yes, that's that's the hope. Yes, because there's all these, these uh, factors that, that come in and you say, okay, well, I'm supposed to care for my family, but how much? Does that mean that they ought to be cared for to where they have the same level of standing as the rest of society? Or is it just, okay, as long as they've got food, clothing, and shelter, they're cared for, and now I need to go make sure the rest of the world has food, clothing, and shelter? Or uh, do I, well, well, I'll go ahead and muddy the waters now. We'll get to it in a second. Proverbs 13:22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. So, is part of my responsibility making sure that I have an inheritance for my children? Do I do that at the expense of my neighbor 
who can't adequately clothe his children. They're not going to die. They're just going to be cold. Is my greater responsibility to lay up an inheritance when I have the money to meet this need? So yes, today is meant to muddy the waters some. So I want you to have two categories, basically. We have over here the very biblical principle of you are required to care for those in need, just as a very broad sweeping statement. And as a very broad sweeping statement, there ought to be levels of priority in your care. So in the very unlikely event that you have two people who have the same amount of need, whoever, and this is what the, the category I like to use for that, God has placed within your sphere of influence, deepest in your sphere of influence. So your family obviously is the closest to you in sphere of influence. And then we grow from that to relatives, church, Christians broadly, rest of the world. But even then, you know, the poor and needy in your community and then in your state and then in your country and then in the world. So those that God has placed closest in your sphere of influence, that is who you biblically have more responsibility to than those outside of your sovereignly God-ordained sphere of influence. That's what I want to be clear in your mind, that <clears throat> those categories exist, the responsibility exists, and then over here, I want there to be a jumbled mess of, okay, but that gets really complicated because I have all these criteria and they overlap. I have Christians that are part of my family and then some of them are more needy than others. So all of these clear cut categories start to tangle and overlap and get messy. <clears throat> and I want us to embrace that and think through that because it's easy to sit here and say, well, you ought to care for your family first, but what does that practically look like? is a question that we will get to, but the reason I want to leave it as a jumbled mess is because I want us to, to get through our clear categories that the Bible presents us, and then we'll, once we have all of those, then we will apply those to the jumbled mess and try to make some sense of it. So does it make sense kind of how we're approaching this and what we're doing? Any questions about the approach factor? Okay. All right, then we only have time for me to really pose this question. And I'll, we'll see. I'll just pose it and we'll see how far we get in this 10 minutes. Do we have an obligation to restore everyone who is poor and oppressed? Are we ever in sin for not helping someone? Or are we always in sin for not helping someone? Let me phrase that in just one question. Having looked at the commands to care for those in need that we've looked at scripturally, if you choose to turn someone away who is in legitimate need, or let's just say anyone who is in need at all, is there ever a case where you can turn someone away and say, I will not help you and not be in sin? Or are you always in sin for choosing not to help someone? Is this assuming you have the ability? Yes. Assuming there is a need and you have the ability to meet that need, is there ever a possibility where you could not be sinning to refuse help? Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would try and do things like, hey, can you just send this to me by the shop? You know, stuff like that. <clears throat> and so there might be cases where I've seen them doing that and didn't notice and then took it back, you know, especially if I've seen them before doing it. Like, right now, you can just email it to me, right? So ask around. Yeah, that's a big question today is... It's hard in our culture of just the person meeting with someone to tell if I really have a need to be talking to you or not. Or if I have, you know, a grumpy. Well, and that's a big question today. (laughs) Do you have to determine whether or not this person is actually needy before you give to them? There's a, a large section of society in the Christian church that says it's not your responsibility to figure out who is and is not in need. If someone asks of you and you have the ability to grant them that, you should. And so then the question is, biblically, is that a warranted statement? Or do you have the responsibility to make sure they're in need? Kind of a major. Mm-hmm. Responsibility by them. Yeah. Because that's what makes it. Anyway, she's in and out of the medical hospital. Um, I can help her help the years. Yeah. And that's the thing. Yeah. Right. And so we find ourselves in these impossible situations like you're talking about, like Ryan's talking about, where you see someone that looks like they're in need, but again, sometimes meeting what they want they're asking for is more detrimental to them than refusing what they're asking for. And so just to quickly answer that question, and we'll get into the nitty-gritty of it and not answer it really next week, do you have an obligation to give to everyone who asks in all circumstances? No. And here's the biblical support for that. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10 says, 
For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So, if someone is too lazy to work, you should not give them food. That is a biblical precedent. Also, 1 Timothy 5, 5 through, looks like verse 10, talks about caring for widows. And he says, you should care for the widow who is truly a widow, left all alone, who has set her hope on God, continues in supplications and prayer day and night. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. That's a strong statement. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. Then we get to the verse we've looked at. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Another strong statement. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So, we see here a biblical precedent for there are some people you should not help. If they will not work, they should not eat. If there is someone who presents themselves to be in need but has relatives who can care for them, let them be taken care of by their relatives. If they are self-indulgent or lazy, the church should not burden itself with these people. So it gives a priority here to those in need who are working, trying to improve their state. He's saying you have the greatest priority to those who cannot help themselves and have no one to help them. So there's another priority factor that Scripture gives us. So to answer the question very simply right now, no, you are not always in sin for refusing to help someone. But to muddy the waters even more, what's your responsibility in figuring that out? Are you in sin for giving to someone until you know whether or not they're in good standing? Because the Bible commands not to feed someone who won't work, not to care for a widow who's not truly a widow. So if you don't know, would you be in sin by helping them? That's further muddying of the waters that we have yet to untangle. But the clear point that I want to give you is there's another level of priority. So we have the other levels we've already talked about. Add on to that, <clears throat> you have a greater priority to help those who cannot help themselves and have no one else to help them. Does that make sense? Okay, so we have another layer of priority and we have another tangled mess to throw in the muddy water that we will sort out as best we can later. But it's good to have those questions rattling around in your mind. How do I apply these biblical principles to this very jumbled, muddy water and these impossible situations where I want to help this person, but I don't know if I should? So, biblical principles, I hope those are helpful to you this week to think through as you decide who to help and how to help them and how much to help them. Let those questions come up. Um, I'd love to discuss them in class as they come up, trying to apply those biblical principles and Lord willing, uh, at the end of this study, once we've looked at all the principles and we've muddied the water up as much as we can, we'll take those principles and apply them to the muddy water and get it as clear as possible together. Any final questions before we end today? Not necessarily a question, but just a thought. And you mm -hmm. might address this. Is just to add more confusion to it, is that 
there's the question that's becoming increasingly important of what the Bible defines as legitimately leaving. So, like, for example, the, the perception of a need can be either grounded in Scripture or it can be influenced in culture. Yes. So, for example, you mentioned that you have an obligation to restore those that you've wronged. Well, there's an increasingly vocal part of our society that says, like, well, you can determine if you've wronged someone based on identity. So, like, you as a white male have a obligation to make restoration with someone that you, you're being told, like, you by virtue of your identity and them by virtue of their identity you have wronged them, so it is your responsibility... Even though you did not personally hurt them because you are part of this group that hurt this group. Yeah, so if the waters aren't muddy enough, um, next week we're going to look at to what extent we're responsible, and then after that we're going to look at corporate responsibility and what is your responsibility as a group to other groups, and we're going to break down those groups into further groups and muddy the waters all up. Yes. The reason, and, that, and that's why, like, when I said that I've been thinking about this for a long time, the reason it's taken me so long to even attempt to do a lesson on it is because there are so many levels, so many applications, and I, I want to get to them. And so we might take a couple of weeks, take a break, come back, give that to Caleb. But yes, there's a lot of levels to it, and we might need them. And we're, <clears throat> Lord willing, I'd like to get to as many of those and try to. Just give some broad principles for each, and um, spoiler alert, it's basically going to come down to wisdom at the end, and we're going to explore what is biblical wisdom, how to apply it to these situations, and it'll be fun. So, let's, uh, let's end in prayer, and we'll come back next week. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to explore your word. Father, it is living and active, and it is applicable to the situations of when it was written. It is applicable to the situations of today. Father, I pray that we all feel some sense of the enormous task of deciphering um, how best to use the resources you've given us. Father, I pray that you would use this study to cause us to have a greater um, a greater level of desire to help those who are in need, Father, that we would not be selfish with our resources, but that we would look to how we can help, that we would have a desire to help to the fullest extent, and that it would be for your glory foremost and the benefit of our neighbor after that. Father, I pray that you would Give us wisdom as we apply these principles this week, as we uh, go about being good stewards of our money. Father, I pray that as we go into worship and hearing your word proclaimed and coming to your table, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are tender to your word. Father, may we rejoice greatly in your work. May we be convicted of our sin, and I pray that most of all you would be glorified by what takes place today and in our lives because of what takes place today. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, who gloriously rose on the Sabbath as we celebrate it. Amen.